and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great, great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself and what I do for a living. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We literally want them to change the name, change the name to Strong Skills. So that's what we're about. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And so we are a group of coaches and facilitators. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation and we get into mindset in this conversation, we talk about discipline, we talk about things like adaptability and curiosity. And if you enjoy learning about those themes, you will love the book. And if you enjoy any of our previous guests, a lot of their stories are actually in the book as well. So you can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the book via Audible if you're into audiobooks. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, I run an accelerator program where I coach executive clients one-on-one. And then I bring them together for group experiences. We do things like a once a month Zoom call. We'll bring in guest speakers. A lot of times past podcast guests come in and talk to our group and we do an annual retreat. The next cohort is actually sold out. It'll launch in January, but we are always creating a waiting list. So the next one will be next July, 2022. If you've ever been interested in one-on-one coaching, feel free to reach out. I'd love to chat with you, especially if you're interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how you can lead and perform better. Today's guest is going to talk about how he's constantly trying to iterate, learn, and grow, and lead better. And so it's people like him that are perfect fit for the accelerator program. So if you're curious to learn more, you can email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. And even if you're not interested and you just want to shoot me a note about the podcast or learn more about the book, feel free to shoot me a note. I love hearing from you. 
thanks to all of you that reach out. It really does mean the world to me. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. And thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Tom Ripley is a partner and co-founder at Ames Watson. Ames Watson is a private equity firm that acquired more than a dozen companies in the defense, retail, light manufacturing, and service sectors. Over the past 22 years, Tom has developed extensive operating experience across more than two dozen different companies. Today, Tom serves as chairman and CEO. He actually just stepped down as CEO and moved on to executive chairman of Lids Sports Group, South Moon Under, and several other smaller holdings. Tom started his career as an infantry and special ops officer in the United States Marine Corps. We're going to talk in this conversation a lot about the military and how it shaped Tom's thinking and also some areas where it didn't shape his thinking and how he's evolved since his days in the Marine Corps. So this is a conversation about leadership. It's about how do you develop people? How do you inspire others? What does it take to run an organization? What does it take to change the course in the direction of a company that may be struggling? So this conversation goes into all kinds of nooks and crannies. We talk about lacrosse. We talk about the military. We talk about discipline. We talk about what it's like to be a dad and a husband. So this is a really wide-ranging conversation that I promise won't disappoint. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Tom Ripley. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we get going, you said something that caught my attention. You said, honestly, I'm a little bit nervous for this conversation. And here you are, you're the CEO of a, a pretty well-known company. You've been in the Marine Corps. You've, you've probably been in some nerve wracking environments. Why are you nervous about a conversation with me? And, and what do you do to sort of quell your nerves and make sure that you're still able to show up the way that you want to show up? Yeah, so I think that's a, that's a great that's a great question. So we, in the, in the special operations community, you're taught that nerves are a good thing. Nerves are actually your body's physiological response to, to prepare for contact. So your, your vision becomes a little more focused. Your breathing accelerates. That hyper-oxygenates your eyes and, and your chest and your body. It improves your reaction time. So the way I prepare for it is, is I embrace being nervous. I, I, I like it. I, it helps, frankly... I know it's going to sound crazy, but it helps me focus and it helps me kind of keen my senses a bit and, and be ready. And, um, and so I think being nervous is, is frankly a good thing because it, it means that I'm prepared. It's interesting. There was some research done that said how we interpret our nerves dictates how they impact us. And so there's a concept of whether we view something as a challenge or a threat. And if we look at something as a challenge, typically we're able to perform better than if we're threatened. But I go back to the Marine Corps and, you know, there are threats in all kinds of different environments. So when you were in that environment, how did you view things as a challenge and, and what would you do when perhaps you were viewing things as a threat? Well, your thoughts become your words, become your actions. I love the word that you use challenged. Um, for me, the, the people will say, I, I'm not a big fan of superlatives. The, you know, I'm freezing, I'm starving. The, the word, I don't like the word hard. 
I, I view things as a challenge because challenge means I'm a competitor. I love to challenge myself. Challenging myself means I'm growing, means I'm learning, I'm expanding. And, and so when we approach companies or when I approach things personally, challenging myself is something that, that is a choice. It's, it's a decision that I want to step forward into. doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or comfortable or fun, but it does mean that I'm going to grow. And, and I think that those growth opportunities are something, regardless of age, we need to run into and run towards. You mentioned personally, and as I was doing some research, I, I learned about your daughters. So you have twin daughters I do. Um, that are autistic. And when I first heard you had twin daughters, I was like, Whoo, twins. And then I heard, oh, wow, they're autistic. Um, and I think about a challenge in, in, in the challenge of, of raising twins, raising kids in general is a challenge, um, but twins and autistic twins. So talk about what you've learned and how you've grown from that experience. So it's a great segue because my son just is in the process of completing his applications for, for colleges and, and he wrote his essay on this. And I think it's completely on point, which is everything my daughters do is a challenge. Nothing that they, there's no, there, there's nothing that's been easy for them. I, I'm sure that's probably true, frankly, for most kids. Uh, life is challenging, but, but for my girls, those simple things like riding a bike or learning to breathe, to, to swim or, or, um, or handwriting are, are incredibly difficult because the executive functioning, you know, disabilities they have with autism. And so it is, they're frankly inspiring to, to my wife and I certainly having twin autistic kids is, is, is challenging, but it's, it's, you know, if you look at it through the lens of, they're an inspiration because everything that they do is, is um, takes a little more effort. Uh, my, my daughter just had her brace, braces adjusted yesterday. And for every kid, that's a traumatic experience because it hurts and they, but it's even a little more challenging for my daughter because she can't communicate what's going on. She struggles to tell me, Hey, you know, this really hurts. Like my mouth hurts right now. I don't like this. And, and it, you know, and they, they can't, put that into words. Instead, it's, it's frustration and noises. And then you get through that and you learn to communicate with them. And so that's inspiring to me that when I see my daughter work through a problem that, that, that we may take for granted, but it's certainly not taken for granted for her. It's inspiring. You said her, are there twins? They are. They're identical twins. Yeah. The only one has braces. That's why I was <laughs> so. And how similar are they and how different are they? So there's, there's a, there's some pretty fascinating research. They're called mirror twins, which means they are, they're my, my daughters are genetically identical. We've had them tested at Hopkins when we went through our autism experience there and um, to five nines, nine, nine point nine, nine, nine identical, but they're opposites from personality perspective. So they're, if you imagine holding your hand to a mirror, they, they are, um, and every facet, it, one likes chocolate, the other likes vanilla, one likes to run, the other likes to walk. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty remarkable thing to see, to, just to have twins. They, 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 one communicates for the other, uh, one um, likes to read, and the other one likes math. And so it's just kind of a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating kind of experiment to see those kids grow up. They're, they look identical, uh, but they're, they're very different personalities. How do you think about nature and nurture? Uh, you know, 
my wife is just is is one of my personal heroes. She she um she the to raise twins is to raise twin girls is is a challenge, but she's she is doing it for autistic girls and and I feel like um my opinion is is that she's really shaped those girls. Um and so that would have me in the nurture camp. I feel like she's she's kind of help them grow and help the, and force them to expand their capabilities, not let them settle for things. I used the example the, uh, um, earlier, one speaks for the other. And that's, that's a real problem for twins, regardless if they're autistic or not. That's why schools often put twins in different classrooms, because what happens is, is there's, there's all of these kind of nonverbal cues and one twin will just kind of defer to the other and the other will speak. And, and before you know it, one has a less developed vocabulary than the other. And so we kind of force the two of them to, to grow and force them to, to put themselves into, into, you know, expanded opportunities. As I'm hearing you talk, I just hear all of these challenges when it comes to communication and whether it's the braces or one learning how to talk or even your, your son's essay is a form of communication. And I think about a leader and, and one of the pillars and one of the most important aspects of being a great leader is communication. You mentioned teams. I think we're going to talk about teams a lot in our conversation today. I, I think anyone who's been part of a great team knows that one of the big keys to a great team is communication. What have you learned from your daughters when it comes to communication? Well, autism really is a, is a, it's many things, but in, in our house and in our, from our perspective, it's a communication disability. Um, it's, it's um, because there's an eye contact, there's social cues, there's nonverbal communication and, and, Autistic kids of all of them, not just my daughters, all the kids that I've met that have been autistic, all struggle with various forms of communication. And so I think they've trained me to be much more sensitive to that. And, and, and the truth is, is for probably the first 30 years of my life, I was completely insensitive to it. Um, I was a very direct style communicator, much in the, in the, in the, you know, spirit of the Marine Corps and how we communicate in the Marines. Um, and, and since my daughters, I've had to learn to be a little bit more, a, a lot more in tune to all those other forms of communication. And frankly, it's made me a better leader and a better teammate in all the teams that I'm involved in in my life. My family team, my, my work teams, all of those teams, I'm better because of them. I'd love to go to the point you made about the military. Um, I have a client who has his own company, he's a CEO. He's, he's going to listen to this conversation. What's up, Tim? Uh, and Tim was in the Marine Corps as well um, and went to the Naval Academy. I believe your son is going to the Navy um, as well. Now, I want to learn more about your history in, in the military, but you know, one of the things that Tim and I talk about without breaking any of the confidentiality that I have with him is just there are benefits to what you learn in the Marine Corps. And then there are things that actually can hinder you when you leave the Marine Corps. So I'd be curious to learn from you. What are the elements that were really helpful? And what are the elements that maybe is not apples to apples when it comes to business and when it comes to fatherhood or being a husband or these these aspects outside of being in the Marine Corps. Yeah. So I was, I had just re reunited with a, with a former instructor of mine in the Marines, who's, who's, who's now a two-star who's transitioning out of the Marine Corps. And we had this exact conversation. And so 
the Marines is a very special organization because there it's absolute. Uh, the stakes are absolute. The orders are absolute. Uh, you put a Marine, a young Marine, let's use the example of, of the most recent one in Kabul. You put a young 18, 19 year old Marine on, on the line out there and you hand him a weapon and you say, this is a target, but this is not a target, but this might be a target, but I'm not sure about this. It could be a target, but you got to make a decision first. That's a really tough place to be. Marines are, are kind of pre-wired to be black and white. This is a target and this is not. And so that shapes your thinking as a young officer. It makes you an incredibly effective tool for our country, uh, but it also can be a real liability when you leave the Marine Corps, because as you know, outside of the Marine Corps, rarely is anything black or white. They're, in, they're an infinite shade in between. For, for my experience, however, um, I was very, very fortunate to be in the Marine Corps Special Operations, a unit called Force Recon. Now, now, MARSOC. And in that unit, nothing is black and white. And in fact, in that unit, probably the most, the most um, clear example I can remember was my first day I show up. I show up from my division as one of the very best young officers in the division. And I walk into my new squad bay with my, with my special operations unit in there. And my platoon sergeant, a guy named Scott Nyman, a, a, a wonderful, wonderful human and a, and, a, and a mentor of mine. And he says, sir, you're in command and I'm in charge. And as long as we understand that, we're going to have a wonderful relationship. And he couldn't have been more right. The, the, the realities are I'm 26 or seven when I walked into that unit. Every man in that unit had been in the Marine Corps 10 plus years. I'd been in three Every man in that unit was older than me by some, by at least a handful of years. They'd all been around the world and done all the things that you think and can imagine Marines do. They're incredibly experienced. And here I show up as the commanding officer of this, of this team, and I'm the least experienced guy in the room. And you have to learn a sense of, you can be the leader and still, it doesn't mean you have to be the most, most experienced. You learn to be very comfortable being inexperienced and not having all the answers. It's a decentralized style of leadership. And it's, a frankly, a style of learning leadership. You have to walk into a room and know that when the, the MU, the Marine Expeditionary Unit Commander, who's a colonel, said, you, Lieutenant Ripley, what are we going to do? What do you think we should do? You have to have the professional courage to turn around and, and look at Sergeant Saba and say, Sergeant, what do you think we should do? And be okay that you're not, a, just because you're the leader doesn't mean you have to have the answer, right? You, you, you need to have the courage to look to the people to your left and right and know that they have the answer because frankly, they do. That's what great teams are. Great teams are combinations of, of different skills and different experiences and they come together to allow you to come up with a perfect solution. So I'm obsessed with curiosity and conviction. And I love what you said is that a great leader doesn't always have to have the answer. And a lot of times the leader does have to give an answer and deal with the consequences after the fact. And so to me, a great leader leads primarily with curiosity so that they can have conviction in the decision. 
Um, but at some point, if you're a leader, you are going to have to be convicted in what you're doing. And the people that are around you are looking to you to give them orders uh, at some point. For you being 26, 27 years old, I'm sure there were mistakes along the way that you made where you were convicted on something. And after the fact, during a debrief, you were like, man, I, I got that wrong. Can you give us any example of a mistake that you yeah. made uh, maybe early in your career? So look, yeah, let's just dismiss with the thought that leaders are always right. Leaders are, you know, the, the, the part of the hallmark of being a great leader, in my opinion, is you have to be ready to make mistakes and know that you're going to make mistakes and, and, and be quick to own up to those mistakes. This mistake-free mindset we have right now is, is just, it, what it does is it stunts leadership and frankly, it stunts decision-making. Um, we make, we have a mindset at, at, in our company at Ames where we're ready to try anything, knowing full well that some of the ideas are bad ideas, but if you don't run at them and try them, you're, you're just going to, you're never going to find the one, you're never going to uncover anything new or different. And so you used a great word earlier. One of our mantras at Ames is we want to be professionally curious. We'll try anything. We'll, we're, we will test any opportunity because only then do you really kind of find those new ones. So I want to go back to answer your question. Have I ever made mistakes? I've made a bazillion mistakes. The, a clear one is I have been a little hesitant on, on, well, I can think of two experiences where I didn't fire a person and, and I fired a person in the Marine Corps and it was, it was, you're young. I questioned my, my conviction. I questioned whether or not it was the right decision. In my gut, I knew that it was the right decision, but I hesitated. And, and it, you know, it cost my unit, frankly, cost my team a, you know, a lot of heartache because of it. So you mentioned curiosity. I'm pretty obsessed with it. Uh, like as I sit here today, and I think maybe the two of us will go grab a coffee one day and I can go even deeper with you on professional curiosity. I was talking to a client yesterday about curiosity and he came up with this definition. He said, curiosity is a desire to find out the truth while knowing there can be multiple truths. And I was just blown right. away by that. And I'm, this is why I love my job. I get to learn from brilliant people. Um, talk about multiple truths because you mentioned the black and white nature of being a Marine. And yet here you are in business as a, a really in change management, you're taking on distressed companies and you're saying, all right, what can we do differently? Let's go underneath the hood, so to speak, and, and see what, what's going on there. I'm curious for you, how do you all think about change management and, and what have you learned in business as you go through trying to disrupt or evolve or change an organization that might already exist and, and is doing well, but you are trying to figure out how to make sure that they can do better? So, so one of the things we, we do when we come into a new company is we, and it's not, it's not a, a, you know, black and white decision. It's, but oftentimes we'll look for younger leaders. Younger leaders are more willing to step forward and more what to be frankly, because they have, they don't have the battle scars of, of kind of more experienced leaders and, and they're more curious. Uh, and because they're more curious, they're going to, try four or five different things and, and be a little bit more um, willing to, 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 to try a, a new idea. Um, one of the challenges of being a leader is you can become complacent with success. Success, you know, high tides, 
you know, kind of cover all the set only when you, you only see the rocks when the tide recedes. And so the, the, um, the, those young leaders are, are not complacent with success because they haven't had any. And, and so older leaders are more willing to kind of let things stay and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, not push the envelope to try to test things. And so we, we've, you know, we just yesterday is a good, as a good example, promoted Britain Mon uh, to president uh, at Lids. Uh, if Britain's thirty six, I'd be shocked. Um, and he's he is a wonderful, wonderful young leader because he is willing to test and try and look at everything and questions everything. Yeah, I saw that um, on LinkedIn, and and so for you, what are the risks when you empower someone like Britain or or just? Generally speaking, what are the downsides to a young leader um, that could also cause for some challenges? So we actually we we met with all of our senior team uh, when we made the promotion, and and one of the, I had this conversation with one of my one of our VPs. But one of the reasons why people micromanage is because they're they don't want to have their authority questioned. They don't want to be challenged, and and. That, that's the opposite of how you should think. You want to, the hardest job for any leader to do is to pick their replacement and to accelerate that person's development. The Marine Corps' mindset in this is one bullet away. So you're only one bullet away from being the, being the next boss. And so we, as, as leaders, our first obligation to our team is to find and train our replacement. And Micromanagers hate that idea because that's that's going to a take away their locus of control. It's going to extend that that authority and control to their team, and it's going to have those young leaders on their team move up and start to question and challenge. And that's that's what you want on a team. You want a team full of of people who are constantly trying to do more and take more, uh, which then. As, as experienced leaders find, is liberating for you as the boss because now you have time and cycles to think about other problems and new ventures and new avenues and challenges. You're, you're liberated because your team is growing and thriving, taking on more and doing more. That's exactly the experience we've had with Britain and with that team. He is a wonderful leader that's constantly looking to do more, which liberates my, my partner Lawrence and I to go think about entering Europe or Mexico or Australia or those new, those new markets because Britain constantly is clamoring for that next piece. It's interesting as you were talking about micromanaging, you, I would think you did a really good job of explaining why it often happens is people want to have autonomy. They want to oh. have control, the freedom to make decisions. And at, sometimes they feel threatened by other people because they're going to get their autonomy stripped. There might be financial ramifications as well for people, but I think of something called the self-determination theory, which often speaks to why are people fulfilled at their work. And the self-determination theory suggests that there's three aspects. There's competence. Am I good at what I do? Do I know how to do this job? Am I autonomous? Like, do I have the freedom to make decisions and relatedness, which is a not a great word, but it essentially means, am I part of something bigger than my than myself? Am I part of a team? Uh, do people have my back? And that autonomy piece, as I was hearing you, I was thinking about, well, the way that you can fight against micromanaging is probably psychological safety. If you 
give Britain the safety and say, hey, if you're going to make mistakes in this seat, we know you are. As long as we understand the process and how you came to make that mistake, I'm not saying there won't be consequences because we all have consequences when we make mistakes, but know that you have the room and the freedom to go make the mistake. And that way they're not threatened. That way they aren't um, sort of set in a box to try to maneuver within a box. They are much more free and, and open. Um, and so I'm curious for you to just riff on self-determination theory, this idea of competence, autonomy, and relatedness, or how you see that maybe working against micromanaging. Well, the, 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 there's a symbiotic. First of all, the, working for a micromanager is the worst professional experience I've ever had. I had it well, I had one in the Marine Corps and I've had a couple in professionally. And it is, it is exhausting. And, and it is just, it's just terror. It's just a terrible experience. The, the willingness to micromanage, there's a direct symbiotic relationship between the willingness to let your leaders make mistakes and micromanaging. If you are not willing to let them make mistakes, you are going to my, that's by it's the opposite side of that coin is you're a micromanager. And, and what happens is, is they feel sequestered and boxed in and it starts to stunt their growth and that in turn stunts the team's growth. And so you have to put your team in a place where you tell them, and I, I've had this conversation with pretty much every leader that I've ever worked with is I know you're not ready for the role. I, we just hired a, an operating partner named Jamie Peace at Ames. And he's, I had this, he's relatively new, been here for a couple of weeks. And I had this conversation with him two weeks ago. I know you're not prepared for the role. I know that I'm putting you in a position where you don't have the skills. You've never done this before. That's okay. Go out and run full speed at these problems. An 80% solution executed at 100% intensity is far better than the inverse. And, and, and so I know that he's going to make mistakes and I'm okay with that. I'm the person to put him there. So the mistakes that he makes are my mistakes, not his. And by giving him that freedom, liberating him from this idea that things have to be perfect um, allows him to go and try and do different things. And it tells him by default, I'm not going to micromanage you. I expect you to be, to, to operate with integrity, call when you need help. Let me know when you have problems. Be honest. Be courageous in your communication with me. Put the put the bad information right up front. It's one of those one of the gifts in the in the military. There's no margin for, you know, it's 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 you know five and not six. If it's six, you got to tell me it's six because I'm making other decisions you're not aware of that are going to have real implications on other people that you don't you don't know about. I need accurate representation of what's happening on the ground, and so that type of leadership style. I think has really been very powerful. And I think it helps immensely in distress situations because there are no complete answers. There are no perfect situations. Everything is in some state of decay. And so you become, you're in this triage mode. You spent seven years uh, in the Marine Corps and you also went to VMI um, for undergrad. As I hear you talk, it's so clear that your military experience had a profound impact on the way you show up as a leader and the way you think about things as a man. But I am so curious about you are someone who comes in and is willing to change, like change management. We're going to do things differently. 
you and I both know, and I didn't serve in the military, but I've had plenty of military people on this podcast and I've coached plenty of people with military backgrounds. The military is wonderful at a lot of things and it's often slow to change. If you were taking over running the entire Marine Corps tomorrow, what would you change? Okay. Uh, Let's, let's just go back for a second because I, in fairness, my family business was the Marine Corps. So my father was a career Marine. Uh, my brothers was a Marine, my uncles, uh, everybody that, you know, uh, that's molded me. So I, I, every two years we moved as a family back then you moved a lot in the military, I, I 14 States and uh, born overseas. And so change was just something that was just natural for us. Um, did you choose, and, did you choose the Marines or did the Marines choose you? I, I, I mean, I knew I, my dad was my hero uh, and, and my dad was uh, it's the person I always wanted to be like. And so I knew if I didn't go to college, I was going to go directly into the Marine Corps. It was just something that I wanted to do. I was pretty confident I didn't want to stay forever, but I knew that I wanted to go in and, and just kind of cut my teeth on it. So when did, uh, sorry, when did dad retire? My dad retired in 1991. And so he was out of the Marines before I was in the Marines. Um, but you know, my father was a, is a very well-known Marine officer. Um, he's, you know, it probably is not a stretch to say he's a legend in the Corps. There's multiple books written about him. There's, and so, uh, he was instrumental in a, in a major, uh, offensive in, in Vietnam that he stopped the North Vietnamese from invading the South. Um, and so, you know, that, that leadership school and that, uh, and all of those essential lessons for being, frankly, a good Marine, which by, by extension makes you a good leader, not a great leader, discipline, accuracy in your words, uh, conviction, all of those things, those started mowing the lawn. They started on my paper route. They started, you know, uh, when you wake up, you make your bed. You know, all of those little lessons, they, they happened long before VMI, long before the Marine Corps or anything. And so, you know, I, I do frankly think that I was in that environment and have been in that environment for a lot longer than, than maybe the years would show. Um, and so, you know, the, the Marine Corps is a wonderful organization, but it's, it, it is a, it is a bit of a political and, you know, it's a large organization, unlike, not unlike IBM or any other organization. And so it has, it is obviously I'm passionate about it. I love it, but it also has its faults and its challenges and and just like any other large organization. And so, you know, I I would, you know, if what's one thing I would change in the Marine Corps, you know, I think the backbone of the Corps are enlisted Marines. They always invariably have the right answer. And so every time the Marine Corps has gone back and empowered those men and women um, and they always come up with the right decision. And so I, I get a little anxious when I see uh, an officer centric decision tree and I, I get excited. And that's probably because of my special operations experience in the Marine Corps. That is a enlisted centric professional soldier centric decision environment. And, and invariably that's where you get your best decisions. I think. We just honored 20 years after nine 11. And I think, Anyone who was alive during that time has just vivid memories of, of that day. Uh, I was in Manhattan on 9-11. So talk about what, what was that experience like for you? Well, I was, I was sitting at my desk at Bear Stearns and, uh, and um, um, 
my wife was working for Bloomingdale's up on Lexington. Uh, Bear was located at 46 in Park. My wife is at, at 57 in Lex. And, you know, the Marine Corps shapes everything you do, especially when you come right out. That's one of the challenges you alluded to earlier is you got to kind of find a way to, to get that out of your system. You can't answer every question with Roger that. It's just not professionally appropriate, <laughs> and so especially when you're at Bear Stearns. And so, you know, but I did, we had... I forced my wife. She looked at me. I was crazy. We had an escape plan out of New York because I knew that it was a, a fairly bottled up place and it just makes you nervous. And sure enough, when 9-11 happened, the first plane hit a tower and and I think it was Ron and Sana or somebody on CNBC. You had the TV on inside the office all the time. And, and he said a small plane had hit the World Trade Center. And I saw the, the image of it. I said, no way. No way that's a small plane. And I immediately knew that that was a terrorist event before the second plane happened. I had already started. I contacted my wife, told her, "Hey, we're gonna we're leaving. Get to you know, I'll meet you at our link up point." And and we left Manhattan. We got on one one or two trains that left on Metro North that day. Went to my in laws' house. It was, um, you know, it was as as difficult a day. And frankly, the next couple of weeks, the thing people don't talk about: if you lived and worked in Manhattan, when you went back to work every day at at Bear, I was on the. 40th or 45th floor every day at bear we would have a bomb scare for a month and they would you'd walk down the stairwells and you're reading in the in the in the journal on the way into work and in the times about these horrible events that happened in the stairwells the world trade center and every day we'd have a bomb scare and you'd walk down 40 flights of store stairs and you'd have your you know women actually crying and men breaking down and you know it was just a that that next 30 days was as painful as, as the event because you just relived it for days and days and days. What do you feel as you relive that experience? Um, uh, a bit of anger um, and, and frankly, yearning to be back in the core. Um, I, you know, you, you tend to be action oriented people when you're, when you're a leader and, and Marine Corps or not, and you want to make a difference. You want to immediately try to find a way to, you know, you see someone digging a hole, you want to grab a shovel, right? It's just the natural reaction of, the, of that kind of person. And, and you wanted to make a difference. And frankly, I knew a lot of guys going over and I, you know, <laughs> not proud of it, but I called my CEO to see if I could get back in my unit. I, I, you know, those are, those are natural reactions. Because, um, you know, you're upset and you want to and you want to try to be a part of the solution. What years were you in the, in the Marine Corps? Well, I, I, I went through the Marine Corps through the PLC program. So I, you know, technically enlisted in 1991. The Marines went through a bunch of summers of training and, uh, and then got out in 1998. And so here you are three years later. Was that? Those 30 days in New York, what did that feel like compared to being overseas in a bunch of other different countries as you traveled the world and, and represented this country? I mean, you, you, you feel frustrated, you know, because you don't. And, and frankly, you're yearning for your team. You know, personally, deeply personally, the guys that are over there. Um, I, you know, you spent, I spent a lot of time those days trying to figure out where my team was, where my guys were. And that team had been, you know, half the guys were in one unit, half were in another. They had, you know, over three years, the, those units break up and fracture and they, they head to different places. You know, you, you hear, you catch wind of, you know, Todd's over here and, and Kadena's over there. And you just, 
you just you 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 yearning to be with your team, right? You you are emotionally and mentally there. You want to be right with them, standing side by side with them, regardless of the odds, regardless of the risks, right? It, you, that's where you want to be, and and so those days are spent thinking about, oh, gosh, I really wish I was there with them, you know. And it's 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 irrational. It's as irrational as sitting in the sitting in the stands and hoping the coach says, "Hey, come on in, we need you," right? Because you're not in the same shape. You're not in, you know, you're not you know, per, ready in a half a dozen different ways, but it's still, that's mentally where you spend your, spend your cycles. We've talked about the military a lot, but it's clear the other thing that has shaped you and continues to shape you as sports. And you just mentioned, you know, being on the stands and watching a game. So your son plays lacrosse and I believe you played lacrosse as well. I did. Yeah. Uh, so talk about lacrosse and your experience playing. And then I know you also coach lacrosse. So I do. Um, yeah. what, what's that experience like? So talk about sports so, and, and lacrosse for a little bit. Yeah. So the level set, I was a bad lacrosse player, which probably makes me, I, I, I think makes me a, a pretty good coach. I was, I was always the kid that I didn't grow up because we moved a lot. You know, there was lacrosse in some of the towns I lived in and then I'd move and there wouldn't be. And so I, um, I walked onto my team in college. I ended up playing a, a pretty fair bit, particularly my junior year. I played quite a bit. Um, and so Tom, were you just a good athlete and you were able to, I was a good, I was a good athlete. I, I'd like to think I was pretty coachable. Um, and you know, I was highly disciplined. What were, so the the sports, job, what were the sports in high school you were playing? I was a very good wrestler. Uh, I played football and, and then in the, in the spring, I, I you know, didn't play a sport unless there was lacrosse in that town and I played lacrosse in that town. And so unlike today, you know, there was not as much specialization. You just, you just played the sport. And, and for when you move every couple of years, it's the best way to make friends. You, you know, you show up for, for summer, for two day workouts in the summer and, by the time school starts, you know everybody on the team, which means you know everybody in your circle of friends at school. And so it was just a wonderful way to, to get to know people. And so um, I, I, I loved, I particularly loved wrestling. My brother was a very, very good wrestler. He was, went to the nationals and, and, and I was not near as good, but I really enjoyed the discipline of it and the rigor and the commitment. And, um, and I picked up lacrosse probably in sixth or seventh grade. And I loved the sport. It was, it's, it's fast. It's, it's got that basketball hockey component to it. It's a contact sport. Um, and so I was, I was very passionate about it. And, and since living in Annapolis, Maryland, um, I, when we, when, when we, before my son was born, I started coaching club lacrosse uh, and, and just fell in love with co the coaching the game uh, and found that frankly, I was a much better coach than I was ever a player. Um, I, I understood all the, the mechanics of it. I had a wonderful coach in college who was a very patient man and, and uh, patient with me, probably not patient on the field, but uh, patient with me. He was willing to tell me things over and over just because I hadn't done it before. And, uh, and Coach Barlow was, um, was frankly a, you know, a mentor for me from a coaching perspective. And so um, as I started coaching club, I, I found that I really, really loved it. And then, of course, my son was born. And when we lived in Annapolis, it's what everybody does. And, and, you know, the, the coaching experience for me has been, has been first and foremost, an opportunity to spend more time with my son, which, which has been, which has been absolutely wonderful, but it's also an opportunity to shape young men. And so I've coached, in fact, this Sunday is our last event. I coached the same team for 10 years. 
we're the number one team in the country. Uh, we're a very competitive club team and, and, and we haven't lost a game and we lost one game at the beginning of summer before that. I think we lost one game to a year prior, but it's, it's a fluke when we lose a game, we won every tournament we played in and they're wonderfully gifted young men. But for me, it's not about the winnings, the winning the games. It's about watching these boys challenge themselves, embrace the work, do the work and evolve and grow. So it's been just a fantastic experience. It's a leadership lab for me and for them, frankly. It's interesting because we sort of talked about some of the downsides in the military come with upsides as well. And then lacrosse, I had Lars Tiffany on the podcast, who's the UVA head coach, and they've won back-to-back, oh, yeah. back-to-back national championships. And Lars grew up playing lacrosse in upstate New York, outside Syracuse with Native Americans and really thinks of it as a spiritual game. Yet where you live, where I live, uh, it's really dominated by prep schools. And, um, you know, there is a negative connotation that comes with the culture of lacrosse bro sport. And there's, there's almost oh, yeah. this other element that's not necessarily, um, I don't know what the right word is to say, but it's, co- it's a complicated deal. There are positives. And then I think there are negatives. Maybe entitlement could be a word that people would throw around when it comes to the private school lacrosse scene. Um, for you, as you, as you're coaching these young men, I'm sure many of them are getting recruited to go play division one. You're at the heart of lacrosse Annapolis for a long, long time has been a hotbed so much so that when I grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, and went to public school, we it's changed in our area quite a bit the last 20 years, but I remember our team went to the state semis and they went up to Annapolis to play. And those kids were just throwing the ball behind the back to each other as our, (laughs) our football team lacrosse players tried to hit them and they would just dodge out of the way. But I'm curious as you're coaching these young men, how do you ensure that yes, they have the discipline, the work ethic, that they're willing to compete for something bigger than themselves, that they understand that lacrosse is meant to be shared and it's a team sport. And, And there's so much good in that sport but how do you make sure that they also don't show up with maybe the entitlement or the rich kid label or whatever you want to call it that also yeah. has been attached to the sport? Well, I, I, I didn't grow up. My dad was a Marine. My mom was a homemaker. So it's, it's, there's, there's no rich kid. It, you know, it's not part of my, my makeup. One, and I had the, this exact conversation with Coach Tiffany when, when we were doing our recruiting profile on our kids. We, um, on our team, we came up with an ethos that I frankly uh, hijacked from a good friend of mine. Um, On our team, we're selfless, physical, and disciplined. Those are the three words that define who we're going to be. And we're not going to, um, you may be a wonderful lacrosse player and talented and fast and big and strong, but if you're not those three things, you're not one of us. And so, and it's printed on everything we have. It's printed on every, uh, it's, it's on our t-shirts at practice. It's on our game plans. It's part of who we are. And then we, we go and, and define those things and tell the, tell the boys and use it in our vernacular and talk about it. So it's important for us that as we deliver a player to the next level, that they come with a certain baseline of, of skills and frankly, of work ethic. So the thing I told Coach Tiffany and I told every coach as they recruited, all 24 of the players on my team are committed to, to D1 schools. They're, I've had, they're, I had, of the 24 players, 20 of them were committed before the end of the recruiting period in September of their junior year. The, what I told those coaches were, 
what I can promise you is you're going to get a kid who is fundamentally sound. The coaches are wildly talented coaches. Lars Tiffany is a great example. He's going to teach that player all of the next level things he needs to do. I'm going to deliver to him a player who can catch and throw and is fundamentally sound. That's the first thing we're going to deliver. The second thing we're going to deliver is we're going to deliver a player who knows how to work hard because anything in life that you want is going to require you to work hard to get it. And so, and the third thing we're going to deliver to them is a player who is a great teammate and knows what it means to be a great teammate, to work as hard as you can for the brother on your left and your right, not putting your needs first, but putting the team's needs first and your teammates needs first. So if I deliver to a college coach, a player is fundamentally sound, can work hard and is a great teammate. Every coach in America wants a kid like that on his roster. It's not my job to teach them some esoteric skill that, that, that may or may not apply in college. That's not the role of a club coach. The role of a club coach is to teach, is to deliver a wonderful teammate who knows how to work hard. And so we focused intensely on that. I think we've been very successful at it. And, and so it's a, and, and frankly, I took a lot of pride in it. I, you know, those boys did all of those things in spades and the results speak for themselves. We're the best team in the country and they're all going to college play lacrosse. What's it been like to coach your son? Very challenging. I fortunately took advice. I was, we're blessed in Annapolis to have wonderful coaches. Uh, I, you know, my, my, my coach, my coaching staff is filled with all Americans and hall of famers. And, uh, Brian Wood, um, who is, could be the best lacrosse player of all time. Um, in fifth grade, I stopped coaching my son as he's an offensive player. I'm primarily a defensive coach. I, Brian came and joined me and, and started coaching my son in the sixth grade. Uh, and, and it frankly blossomed my relationship with my son. No kid wants to get yelled at by their dad in front of their friends. That's just not an equation that works really well. And truthfully, my son's skills had eclipsed my coaching ability at sixth grade. That's just the reality of living in Annapolis. They're very talented players. And so I was very fortunate to have, wonderful coaches around me that could take the reins and, and allow me to have some distance and be a dad and, and not be his position coach. Cause that just, that equation just frankly doesn't work. It's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, it's like, Hey, we've been in Annapolis for a long time now. Uh, you're, you're sort of grounded there. It sounds like, and look, your, your dad was in the Marines, but you've done the Marine thing. Now you're in, you're in big business now. Um, and so what are the values that are similar that you've instilled in your kids? And what are the values that might be a little bit different given that they're having a different experience than moving every two years? And perhaps they are in a different type of school and they're surrounded by a different environment. What's, what's different about how you're raising your kids than maybe how you were raised? Yeah. So, so I think frankly, time is, you know, we've evolved as a society for the, for the good, for the better. Uh, my father was, um, very draconian, very black and white about things. Um, you know, and it was, I many times went out and picked my own switch <laughs> and brought it in. And so it's, you know, you, 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 uh, it's just a very different environment. And so my, and my mother, uh, you know, was truly the boss in our house. She, she ran things and, and because my dad was not always around, my dad was deployed in the Marines. Um, I think that the big difference in my household is my son is a very, um, a very understanding uh, and compassionate kid. Um, it's a mistake-free environment we live in, and so 
uh, you you have to be very careful with the decisions you make, and you have to be very care- mindful of, of of where you go and what you do, and and so you know those risks are always out there. And so I think the environment that we try to create in our house is is it's okay to make mistakes. It's it's life doesn't end when you when you make a a mistake, and and he doesn't make many. He's made a few, and and we pick ourselves back up, we apologize and we, we move forward. And so it's, I, I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, pretty big difference from the way I grew up. It's interesting, discipline, physical, um, and, and selfless as sort of values for the lacrosse team. I would be interested to find out what compassion looks like. And, um, that's a word that I would imagine having twin sisters that are autistic, you have to be patient you have to be compassionate. And then there's also probably some empathy that you learn that, you know, sometimes people are going through things that you don't even realize. Like people might look at him as this star lacrosse player playing on the best team in the country. And he's going to go off to the Naval Academy, which very few people get to experience, which is a great school academically. It's really hard to get into their lacrosse program is a great lacrosse program. So it looks like he has everything. And then when he comes home, he, he is, dealing with challenges of helping out probably with his sisters. And so that word compassion, I think of the word empathy. I think sometimes we think of those words as maybe you're soft for having those things. But to me, if you're able to have compassion and empathy, you're actually way, way stronger. And by the way, you can still be physical and have compassion and empathy. Like I love watching ice hockey and lacrosse has some of this as well. And I love watching the playoffs and those guys compete and they fight and they claw. And then after it's done, they all get in a line and they shake hands and they look each other in the eye and and they have respect for each other. And to me, I don't know where we got to as a society that said, yeah, you can't have both. Like you can be between the lines and be physical and be disciplined and be selfless. And then afterwards, look your opponent in the eye and say, Hey, good game, man. I love the way you competed. Like there's nothing, I don't know. Like those don't have to be polar opposites. They can be totally agree. One of the, one of the, one of my favorite words as a leader is love. I I tell, I tell my, my lacrosse players on my club team that I love them. I tell my teammates, I tell my partner Lawrence that I love, it is, and there's, that sounds strange as a leader, but, but it's very true that I love you. Doesn't mean that I, that I'm blind and I, and I can't be honest with you. One of the most powerful things that Lawrence and I, my partner and I do with each other is we're very honest with each other, right? I love him and I do anything for him, but when he's distracted in a meeting because he's got a gajillion things going on, I have no qualms about telling him, Lawrence, you need, you need to pay attention. Like we, and he does the same to me. He, you know, we hold each other accountable and frankly, that accountability is is a key component to to a successful team you can if you truly love someone you're willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable position to tell them when they're wrong right that's that's part of being compassionate that's part of being a great teammate is telling them hey i think you're not doing a good enough job right now and and because if I don't love you, it, it, that makes me uncomfortable telling you that doesn't that it sure it makes you uncomfortable, but it's putting me in an uncomfortable position. And that's true leadership, right? Making yourself uncomfortable for the betterment of the team, right? And so it's it's 
that that equation of compassion and 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 being a hard, firm leader, being disciplined, are complementary skills when done properly, right? The the the, the wrong step is is well, I'm not going to tell him because he will think I don't like him. That's a bad that's a bad team. I, I don't want to ever be on a team like that. Uh, I'm getting like chills as I think about this, but over the last year and a half with the pandemic, I've had so many people just pull me aside somewhere and just be like, Hey, Brian, like I'm really struggling with some stuff. Like, and these are people that no one would ever have any idea of their struggles from the outside. Everything looks all gravy. And so I also think about compassion as being, Hey, you good? Like everything. Okay. How's everything going with your, your husband or your wife or your kids or, you know, really like giving people space and making sure that they feel seen because especially over the last year and a half, people have not been good. Uh, they might totally. say they're good. They're not good. Um, I haven't been good for the last year and a half. There have been times where I felt lonely and isolated and um, like, and, and I study this stuff for a living. So I just think that's another piece to being part of a team is to sort of check with each other and, and make sure that you, they know that, you've got their back. And it's one thing to say, I've got your back. It's a whole nother thing to, to ask questions and just to be curious with people and, and probe them. Um, you mentioned Lawrence, how did your partnership form? So Lawrence and I met in uh, April of 2008. Um, he is, uh, he was a, the kind of led the investment team at a, at a private equity fund. And I, and I went there to become an operating partner for them. And um, we, engaged on a handful of deals together. He would find the company and set up the transactions. Wonderful negotiator. He's very, very good at, at putting those deals together. And then I would come in and, and, and start to run it, right? Come up with a plan for turning it around. And, and so it was a very much a professional relationship. He had had a young family. I was in the same, same spot and we were both working incredibly hard. Um, and in 2013, I left and went and started my own my own shop basically uh bought a couple companies and and he um decided to leave in 2017 and we were having lunch and it just we hit it off we kind of picked right up where where we left off in 13 and and it was our our pretty much the foundation of our relationship uh and and our firm today is one of we want to be better than our prior experiences. We want to build a team and build an organization where we're incredibly proud and frankly supportive and to, for people to make mistakes and run and spread their wings. Um, and, and so that's exactly what Ames Watson is today. We, we have, it's the best partnership I've ever been a part of as like everybody in business, you've been in good partnerships and bad ones. This one is the summation of all the things I did wrong in prior partnerships, same for him and, and netted out into the essence of what is a effectively, he's my work spouse. Um, and so today's his birthday. Happy birthday, Lawrence. Um, so uh, he just turned the big five Oh, so we're, we're, I'm just, I couldn't be happier to have him as a partner. He's, he challenges me. He makes me better. He calls me out. He's funny. Um, he's demanding. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just been a, a really a very rewarding experience. And then together you make a big splash for people like us that are sports fans you go into a mall and you know where lids is. And I know I yeah. grew up, in, I grew up in Montgomery mall 
and we had a lids and I can remember going in there and trying hats on and, and buying hats. I have, I just went to my parents' house. They still have some of my box stuff from my bed. Yeah, there we go. I was like, I'm a little too old for you to, to keep this stuff. And my mom <laughs> said, yeah, you're a little too old. Although my older brother still has a lot more stuff there than I, than I do. And I was just going through box after box and there were hats. And I texted one of my buddies, Eric. And I said, Eric, I think you gave me this hat because you were always two sizes bigger than me. So when you grew out of it, I got this hat. And um, so I was just going through and reminiscing about all those hats and, a lot of them have, there's memories that are associated with those hats. I had a hat that was, uh, growing up, we were an Oakland A's fan because we knew the trainer for the Oakland A's. And I had a hat that was half the Oakland A's and half the San Francisco Giants because they played each other in the World Series. Um, and, and so anyway, there were all these memories. But for you all, the big splash that you make together is acquiring lids a few years ago. Um, talk about what was attractive about lids at a time when, look, this is even pre-pandemic. People are saying retail's dying, yeah. malls are dying, and and here you all here saying, "All right, here's our chips. We're gonna we're gonna go all in on on this." And I know you have other investments as well. And I'd love to talk to you about South Moon Under. Growing up in this area, my wife would love to talk to you about South Moon yeah. Under. But uh, talk about the decision to go in and, and acquire Lids. Yeah. So so Lids was owned by a company called Genesco. Um, who owns Journey Shoes, Journey Kids, and, and Johnson Murphy. And uh, we'd owned a small uh, West Coast retailer called Fans uh, that was in the licensed sports space, owned by the, it was originally Utah Jazz uh, Team Shop. And they were at their zenith, like 150 locations. When we bought it, I think it was 87, uh, mostly Western United States. We purchased that in February of 18. And that got us in the room uh, to look at the lids deal. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Lawrence is just a, a remarkable, he, he has a nose for deals, but he's also a wonderful negotiator. He's very frank. He's, he has a gift for, for asking for the preposterous and, and, and frankly, oftentimes getting it. And so we got our, we got in the room in, in May of, of, of um, that year of May of that's 18. And, um, and we were originally looking at, at some, just to, if, if the deal didn't go through and it had had a couple of fits and starts the transaction, uh, we knew that there, this might be a broken deal. And so we offered for a piece of it. And, and um, the truth is, is the banker laughed us out of the room. He screamed at us on the phone and told us we were ridiculous and we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, that was June of that year. And in October of that year, he called us back. And, and Lawrence has this, one of the things he always does is he kind of always keeps the door open. He said, hey, you know, okay, well, we understand. And if, if you change your mind, you know, give us a call back. We're always here. And sure enough, he called in October and came back. And, hey, Tom, and that's just, when, just on that piece, because yeah. I think there's a lesson to be learned there. What allows Lawrence to leave the door open? Because a lot of people in those situations will let their ego take over yeah, and say, no, nope. like they'd say, it's take it or leave it. That's it. Um, I'm going to go take my money and use it somewhere right. else. I'm insulted or huff yeah, off what, or what does like he do to, to, to stay open in that? In you, say, you say, Lawrence has no ego. He, he, he is not offended. He's not insulted. He doesn't get, uh, you know, it's not about him. It's never about him. And, and it's something, frankly, I think he and I have both in common. It's never about us. It's always about the team. And so, when he, when he has that conversation, that person gets upset and maybe takes it personal. Lawrence is like, no problem. I understand 
thank you very much. I appreciate the time. And it's very affable and, 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 and kind of ends it with a, Hey, we're around. If you, this happened literally two days ago with an Australia opportunity. It, it, It was, it was a, Hey, we're around, reach out if you, if you have a change of heart and, and they reached out. And so that, not making it personal and not putting your ego up front like that just always builds more opportunities and brings things back around. You know, what's amazing about that. Cause it, if you think about it, it is personal to the person on the other side. Totally. You are going in and saying, Hey, you guys are having some challenges. Here's what we're willing to do. They are going to be offended because they probably don't want to be in the spot that they're in. And so it's almost as if we need to know who we are negotiating with and we need to understand their perspective. And it would make sense that they would be angry, just like it would make sense that you would be angry when that plane hits the tower. Whereas maybe I would be afraid or sad. Like we have different experiences and and different viewpoints on what is going on in that moment. It's the same thing in what you're talking about here, like their perspective is shit. Like we're not in a good place right now. Um, Look, I, 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 I was on that call. That guy made it personal to Lawrence and, and, uh, and myself. I mean, he, he was, it was offensive, but it was the, the, the right move there, both professionally and frankly, as a leader and as a teammate is to, okay, I get it. You're upset. That's perfectly natural. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you're upset. Hey, look, if you change your mind, we'd love to, we'd love to do the deal. That ability to kind of dodge that punch, not, not allow it to go that direction, not allow it to dive down into the personal and keep a professional with a response like that, that, that takes real skill. It takes real confidence in your abilities and your ability to kind of keep your ego in check and make it about the transaction. And, and he does that. And the, he emotion, does that all and the, the time. emotions, right? Like when yeah, someone right. is, when someone is attacking us and defensive, For our sure. typical reaction is to fight. <laughs> like, all right, For F sure. you, F you. <laughs> but the, the idea there that it's not going to serve your constituents, it's not going to serve your company. That to me is so, so important for people to hear because I know for me, I tend to be a passionate, emotional guy. So I don't mind having the fight. Like I'm good. Like, let's go. (laughs) And what I've realized is a lot of times that's not serving anybody, including myself. And so that's a big takeaway for me is like, before I enter a room, if there's a negotiation, it's like, Hey, what is it that I want? Let's prepare. Let's ask them what they want. And then let's make sure that we don't get away from focusing on what we want and, and, and also having compassion and empathy and understanding, Hey, they, they might be upset and, and they're, they're entitled to that. I, I totally agree. I think, I think, you know, when we go into negotiations or when we, when we enter to try to find deals, it's always with an in-state in mind. We know, okay, these are our limits. These are the things we want. Um, and so it's, and we also have a very clear vision of when we're ready to walk away. Like, this is just not a good deal. We need to walk away and, and, and say no. And eventually, and that's what we, we offered a number in, in June of that year for lids. And they said, no, we bought it for less than that number in February of the following year. Right. And we knew what it was worth to us. We knew what we were willing to pay. And so it was, it was about being patient, 
and just kind of having having a set set goals and principles and kind of sticking to those. And so, you know, fortunately it worked out for us. And you have it from 2019 into 2020 pandemic hits 2020 you're wow. in retail. You still have online presence as well, but you're in retail malls are, pro- they're not even open. What, Incredible. What's, that, what's that been like for you? The 2020 on and, and leading. So I'll, I'll never forget. We have at the time we had about 8,000 employees. Um, March 23rd, it, the week prior, March 11th, the, 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 they, they started shutting malls down all around, all around the world. Um, and in particular in the United States, I think it was in Ohio, they, they shut the first mall and, and very quickly it became clear that we were going to shut every mall in the country. And on March 23rd, we laid off, we furloughed is the proper term, uh, that all every single employee except for seven people because our vision was the person who is who can go we didn't know what the when the end was I, and and you know we didn't know how long this was going to go on and, and so we our plan was let's conserve as much cash so we can keep the company alive and pay people's benefits as long as possible and and hopefully we'll make it out the other end but if we don't get austere quick and build our cash reserves immediately, we're never going to make it to the back end. And so in March 23rd of that, of that year, I, I, we laid off every, every single employee except for seven people. And it was an HR person, a payroll person, a benefits administrator, and the, the, you know, three or four executives. And, and it was, we met every single day. We did a phone call at 8.15 in the morning, every single day, Saturdays and Sundays included, from March 23rd until, frankly, the holiday season of that year. I remember um, it was such an inspiring moment. And in, in Texas, Dallas was the first market to open back up. And I had two employees that contacted our district manager, a great guy, Jay Miller, uh, asking if they could, hey, they're trying to convince them we can we can get into the mall. I know a back way into the mall to get the store open so that when they open the mall back up, we'll be ready. And I'm like, guys, we, we can't break into a mall to get our stuff. I mean, there's just something incredibly inspiring to have teammates like that at Lids that are like, we want to open our stores and, and recognize that they're on the front line. Like, we don't know what COVID's going to bring and they want to go out and open the stores so that they can they can interact with their customers and they can be, they can get, you know, turn the machines back on. And it was just such an, an inspiring, uh, uh, you know, couple of early couple of weeks. And what's it been like in 2021 for you all? It's been incredible. We, the, the, we've seen a, a, a marked pivot from the player to the team. Uh, and there's a, uh, people just want normalcy. And part of normalcy is, is sports. You know, where people want to go back and, and watch watch their teams and enjoy those experiences. And and so uh, we've seen just a, a fevered pitch uh, uh, demand for for sports and for sports apparel and for, you know, to go and buy the hat for opening day. And, and, and so it's been it's been just a, a fantastic year. And then for you, was the online presence even more important during 2020 when when things were, were when things were closed, yeah. So we're we're very different than than I would say basically every retailer out there. 
And part of the transaction, part of the, the frankly, the brilliance of the structure of the transaction when we bought lids was we turnkey gave our entire online experience to Fanatics. And so Fanatics runs lids.com. We, we, we work together on, 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 you know, maybe product launches and assortments and, and that sort of thing and communicate about how we're going to, where we're going to step in heavy this year in, in baseball or football or something like that. But, but they run that online experience. I, I spend virtually no time thinking about it. And it does a couple of really special things. One is fanatics is the, 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 they are the absolute premier online retailer on the planet of anything, in my opinion, but it's undisputed in licensed sports. Uh, they, they are absolutely the very best at it. They're wonderful partners. They're exceptional at it. Our, our online business is doubled in size at lids.com and lids.ca um, because of them. But I spend all of my time singularly focused on our brick and mortar experience. But let's recognize for a moment that Amazon has trained everybody to expect it tomorrow on your doorstep. And so online is a transactional marketplace. Nobody goes to a store and a mall for convenience. It's, it's experience that they go to the, the mall store. It's selection and experience. There, there's a joy in, in part of that retail experience. So we need to make sure that our retail experience reflects that. And so that's what we're focused on at Lids. The, the Lids experience is as good a shopping experience as there is in retail. It's, it's a panorama of, of selection of every major baseball team and football team and different colorways and different fits and different styles, jerseys and hats and sweatshirts and, and everything you, a sports fan could want. Frankly, everything that a fashion fan could want. Um, and so it's um, – and that's where we focused. And, and Fanatics has liberated us to think about that. And, and so they did a wonderful job during the pandemic. They've done a wonderful and even better job since. It's been a great partnership at the highest level all the way all the way through both organizations. So just to summarize, the idea there was, A, we, are, we don't know the online marketplace and to break into that online marketplace is going to be a challenge. That world is about getting what you want, getting it quickly, having the supply chain, all that sort of stuff. Fanatics has this thing figured out. Let's let them run our process. They get a fee. You know, you have a partnership with them. And then we're really focused on the retail side of this business. And um, that's what we're all our attention is going toward because that's where we feel like we can be a differentiator um, when it comes to uh, that experience. And that, that, yeah, go ahead. That's exactly what's that's, that's exactly right. And it's, it's going, it's really coming full circle. So we, they run our e-com experience. They do a great job at it. You know, they can, they basically are Amazon. They can have it to your door overnight in any size, any color, any fit. Um, and then the, the reciprocal of that is we're now, taking over their, their brick and mortar experiences. So Fanatics for a long time ran the MBA store, that the, the, their flagship store in Manhattan. They had to have a store manager and a, and a loss prevention, inventory control, and all these different layers. Well, I have 40 stores in Manhattan. And so we partnered together. We're now going to take over the MBA store. We'll reopen that store on October 1st. And it's been a wonderful partnership with Fanatics, with the NBA, and with us. And we're thrilled to have an opportunity to run the store. Fanatics knows that we're the very best in brick and mortar. Nobody is, nobody has the, the, the ground, the boots on the ground like we do. 
And so we just took over the NHL store. We're doing it. We did a soft opening on the store yesterday. The official opening will be on the 27th of this month. And again, a fanatics experience that we've taken over because we do it better than anybody. They know that they respect that we do it better than anybody because we have the people in, the, in there. We're running 15 Yankees clubhouses in Manhattan. We have 20 lids, traditional lid stores in Manhattan. And, and so I have a full suite of, of pros, hardcore retailers in the city. It just makes sense for us to do it. And so that's, that's really where that, that relationship and frankly, that trust between the two organizations has really kind of blossomed. You mentioned you had 8,000 employees and then you had to furlough them. How many employees are you, are you currently managing? We're about six, we're about 6,000 employees. We'll, we'll balloon up at retail at holiday time, probably past 8,000. We're at about 6,000 employees. Lids is, we're, we've got to be one of the top 10 employers of single, single parent, you know, single mom. It's because our, our hours work well with, with school hours. Uh, there's a lot of autonomy running a lid store, um, we have great benefits at our lid stores. Uh, and frankly, it's a really fun business to be involved in. It's, it's engaging. Uh, it's a, you know, who doesn't like sports? Everyone knows there has their team, regardless of sport. And so we, we, a lot of our stores have, have a single coverage or like kind of a double coverage. It's a one, two split on shift. And so, and they're small stores. So you don't feel like you're, you're in this enormous box. And so it's, we have a great team. Our store managers have gotten to know so many of them and, and they're just wonderful people. What do you all do to make sure that they are creating the experience that you want? So, so how do you train the store managers or develop them or, or help them be great at their job? So I, I ran a, I ran a thousand person call center. Uh, it was one of our companies we bought that was distressed. And, and one of the keys for running a profitable call center is, is, having a great training cadre, a great training process that ensures that your product, whatever that product is, is consistent every time. Lids has a phenomenal training um, process. And so our, we, we, we never hire someone and they become a store manager automatically. We always have them come in and kind of work through the ranks a little bit and, and you know, develop those skill sets. Our training tools at Lids are, I think they're the best I was blown away when I saw them when we bought the company. I knew that it was, I, I went through the training. It's truly exceptional. And what it does is it builds confidence in the associate. They know that they have the tools um, and, a, and, a, and a kind of the toolkit to solve any problem that a customer may have. I want to return something. It's broken. I need two of them. I want to customize it, right? They, they have all the tools to kind of handle those situations. And so that, that's a big part of it. I think we pay our associates very well. I'm particularly proud of our incentive compensation plans that that reward associates for our teammates for for driving sales and frankly for for improving customer experience. And so, look, it's it's the retail space is hyper competitive because in a mall, if you think about it, it's effectively a job fair, right? You can you can walk from door to door to door. If you need an employee that wants to work in, in your store at a mall, you just walk across the mall to the other store and try to hire that person. You know that they they know where to go to work and that they've already. And so it's to, to keep great employees, you have to be hyper-competitive at malls. And, and I think Lids is. As we wind down here, bef before we started talking, you said, Brian, I just finished a workout. I, you know, I often like to work out before I'm doing interviews. It gets my brain flowing. What are some other things you do intentionally on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that you're at your best? So 
I started fasting uh, probably two years ago. I, I my last meal is at eight. My wife would probably tell you nine, but it's and she's probably right. But let's say for theory, eight o'clock at night is when I try to finish eating, and I don't eat until noon. I have a couple of cups of coffee. Um, I, I one of the great gifts the Marine Corps gives you is it teaches you to wake up and get your workout in because your day gets going and you're gonna miss it, and there's all these excuses. And you, you know, you just don't, don't get tempted. And so don't listen to the voice in your head. So I wake up, I get my workout in a couple of cups of coffee. I'm a big sauna fiend. I love the sauna and listen to a couple of podcasts while I'm in there. And so that's what we call in the core, your BDR, your basic daily routine. That's, that's kind of how I start pretty much every day. Um, and it, look, it works for me. I, I, I think everybody's built a little differently. It's, you know, Lawrence is a, is an avid swimmer. It's where he does his very best thinking. He calls me after every time he gets out of the pool, he's like, I got an idea. Uh, and it's, you know, typically like 1130s. I get a phone call from him. I know what's coming. And it's, I got an idea because he was in a pool for an hour with his thoughts. And, and, uh, and that's just the way both of us are kind of wired. And I think it's, it's frankly, it's how I re rekindle my relationship with discipline. It's those the require there are days I don't feel like working out. There are days I don't I want to eat, but discipline's a learned behavior, and it's something that you have to kind of rekindle and re not reunite yourself with on a daily basis. And and so aside from the physical acts of working out, it's the mental exercise of I'm going to be disciplined. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to wait for a day, and or I'm going to wait for an hour, and, and and do it at exactly twelve. And I think that's important for me. Awesome. Tom, is there anything you want to promote or give a megaphone to? Obviously, if people want to follow LIDS, where can they do that? If there's a nonprofit or an organization that you're passionate about, if there's something around autism that you think people should be more aware of, let's just use these final moments here to promote whatever it is that you want to give a megaphone I to. I love it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So yesterday, we had our golf tournament for LIDS Foundation. It's our eighth year. Uh, the LIDS Foundation, at every store in a LIDS, is a, is a coin jar or the opportunity to round up. The Lids Foundation has raised $4 million. So two years ago, the Lids Foundation um, uh, partnered with Autism Speaks and we raised $100,000 for them and, and have made additional donations to them. A year ago, we partnered with Big Brothers Big Sisters uh, and, and had raised over several hundred thousand dollars for them. We did it locally. So each the top store each week would present a car dealer size check to the big brothers, big sisters in their town. And it was, it was a wonderful experience this year. Um, we're partnering with breast cancer research foundation. Um, uh, and uh, I'll just make this just personal for one moment. Lawrence's wife um, is a, is a uh, rec recovered from breast cancer. She had uh, hers to um, breast cancer stage two and one in six women will get that. Uh, and it, 15 years ago, that was a death sentence. Um, in fact, I have a young, a young man that I coach. His wife, or excuse me, his mother in March of this past year uh, had the same diagnosis and she passed away in July. Mm. Um, and it is since then, a doctor at UCLA has found a, the, the protein that's associated with that type of breast cancer. And they're working on a vaccine. And so on October 1st, the LIDS Foundation all across America, every LIDS associate will be wearing a Breast Cancer Research Foundation t-shirt. The LIDS Foundation is going to give several hundred thousand dollars to, to that 
organization this year. We're going to champion that cause. We have two things that we can do with, at the Lids Foundation. One is obviously money. And we're proud to give every dollar that, that is given to the Lids Foundation goes directly back out to charities. We don't, we don't keep anything. We don't use anything for overhead. It's 100% borne by the shoulders of the associates. But two, with 6,000 associates, we can raise a lot of awareness. Our associates love to think that they're working for something bigger. And so this year, it's going to be breast cancer. Last year, it was Big Brothers, Big Sisters. The year before, it was autism. I don't know what it will be next year. But it's fantastic to have something, to have this mindset that we're going, there's something bigger than myself. It's something bigger than than just LIDS. And that's what the LIDS Foundation is about. And so it was, it's a, it's a very kind of, uh, the time it's the fortunate timing. I just, we just finished our, our, our big golf tournament yesterday. We're super excited about it. It's been a wonderful thing to be a part of. It's a lot of fun. And frankly, we do a lot of good. So. Beautiful. Um, also Tom is on Twitter. I found him on Twitter. He's at <laughs> RIP eight, six, five, four. Um, and do not look for the talented Mr. Ripley there. That's not, that's not going to yeah. show up. I'm sure people can make talented Mr. Ripley jokes with you all the time. Um, yeah. But uh, lids.com is also where you can check them out online. Uh, you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson as well. Tom, man, this has been wide ranging. I feel like we could keep going for another hour, hour and a half but I, I respect your time and um, I'm sure we'll, we'll chat again soon, but thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Let's just dismiss with the thought that leaders are always right. Leaders are, you know, the, the, the part of the hallmark of being a great leader, in my opinion, is you have to be ready to make mistakes and know that you're going to make mistakes and, and, and be quick to own up to those mistakes. This mistake-free mindset we have right now is, is just, it, what it does is it stunts leadership and frankly, it stunts decision-making. Um, we make, we have a mindset at, at in our company at Ames where we're ready to try anything, knowing full well that some of the ideas are bad ideas. But if you don't run at them and try them, you're, you're just going to, you're never going to find the one, you're never going to uncover anything new or different. And so you used a great word earlier. One of our mantras at Ames is we want to be professionally curious. We'll try anything. We'll, we're, we will test any opportunity. 